0: In light of God's provision for them of a child that they still worshiped God in the midst of that and this morning we're going to consider Mary and watch her as she depends on God even despite doubt and so one thing we learn as we come upon the Christmas story and enter into the Christmas season and really conclude the Christmas season this week that is that we learn is that is that the Christmas story is marked by a combination of fear and faith it's not just one or the other. Christmas is not all celebration. It's not all joy. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of trauma. There's a lot of difficulty. There's a lot of just sin that shows up in the effects of sin in the lives of people. But that doesn't stop God, and it doesn't stop his salvation. And so this is one of the reasons we've called the series "Christmas." Mess. It's not just a clever thing. It's, I found out it wasn't so clever. I thought it was clever. I came away, I was like, that's a cool title. I never have cool titles, I don't feel like, and that was cool. And then I did a Google image search, and like every church in the history of the world has used Christmas at some point. So we're not all that original. We just come around to using things again. So, um, but no, what we've seen is that fear and faith coexist in this story, and that's going to be no less true in Mary's account this morning. Scott Sauls, pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Writes the following about the Christmas story. He says, Have you, have you ever stopped just for a second and considered the far fetched claims of Christianity at Christmas time? During this particular holiday, Christians all over the world, millions and millions of them, paused to contemplate a first century Middle Eastern infant, mothered by a teenage girl who'd never been with a man, born dirt poor, and from a small, obscure hick town called Nazareth. This little boy, this underdog whose life was allegedly surrounded by miracles such as a virgin birth, unexplainable healings, and resurrection, Christians say, is the answer to the, all the world's problems. The hope of the universe rests on the belief that this seemingly far-fetched fairy tale is actually true. That's the real miracle of Christmas. At one, at one level, we can talk about the miracle that Larry read for us, and that Tim referenced in his welcome, the miracle of the incarnation. That's the miracle of miracles. But the greater miracle—well, not greater—but and another miracle that that is that is that stands right alongside it is the miracle that anybody would believe this story. <laughs> I mean, it, it sounds so incredible, and by incredible, I mean incredible, lacking credibility. And yet, it's true. So what is the proper response to Christmas? How do we receive this true tale, this far-fetched fairy tale that is actually true? Well, Mary serves as a wonderful example for how we're to respond to the Christmas story, and I've got four points this morning. If you picked up one of the note sheets on the way in, you'll have them in front of you, and you can follow along with me. Here's the first way she responds. She responds intelligently. An angel appears... With a message from God, in verses 26 and 27 of Luke chapter one, and the angel tells her that she is going to give birth to a baby that's ultimately going to be the ch- the son of God. And what what you see when you come to the Christmas story, and what often is 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 highlighted, is that this miraculous intervention of an angel somehow underscore or, or just somehow subverts the rationality and intelligibility of this story. I mean, right out of the gate, we've got an angelic visitation. I mean, anybody had that this week, you know? We had any angelic encounters? No. And so a lot of people believe that religious people just believe things without questioning them. And that we operate out of this gullibility and blind faith. We don't really test claims, we just accept them. But that isn't the case, friends. Look at chapter 1 verse 29 and look at Mary's response to this angelic visitation and the word that came from the angel Gabriel but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be in other words she engaged her mind in this conversation Christian faith is intensely rational that means it involves the mind it involves thinking she responds with a legitimate question in verse 34. How will this be? She's, she's discerning what the angel's saying. She's trying to figure out what's going on here, and she, she cannot compute how she's going to give birth to a baby when she's a virgin. It's a legitimate claim. It shows that she's thinking. It shows that she's intelligent in the way that she responds to this angelic visit. Mary shows us that responding in faith brothers and sisters, does not cancel out your mind. It's common for people in our modern world to assume that people in ancient times were less thoughtful than we are now. I mean, we're so far advanced. We get along so much better. Cue Facebook and Twitter. We assume that people were superstitious and ready to believe absolutely any claim back then. One writer, speaking sarcastically about this claim that ancient people were just gullible and illiterate and unintelligent, responds with the following. Yes, people who lived before our times were idiots. That's why they memorized huge portions of every conceivable kind of literature. Rabbis formed schools to train young men in theology, who then would pass on that learning verbatim to successive generations without the aid of textbooks. Ancients had detailed calendars that kept track of the movements of the planets and changing of the seasons in the time of upcoming solar and lunar eclipses. The circumference of the earth had already been calculated and people navigated land and seas without a GPS, while we, in all our modern wisdom, can't find our keys, figure out what day of the week it is, or remember how to get to the doctor's office. The truth is there are both gullible and discerning people in every age." But a question might arise here, especially if you were paying attention last week, and Larry surfaced it for us in his scripture reading. You notice that both her, that is Mary, and Zechariah, as we saw last week, seem to operate with a measure of suspicion. There's a little bit of doubt in what they're communicating. Look at chapter 1, verse 18. Be reminded of what Zachariah said last week. Zachariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am old man and my wife is advanced in years. And then Mary says something very similar in chapter 1 verse 34. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? What's the difference? What's the difference? Why is Mary not struck mute? Right? We saw last week that Zechariah is disciplined for his unbelief and yet Mary seems to ask a similar question here and she gets away scot-free. It's like, is like, God just capricious he just decides who he doesn't like guys he likes girls doesn't like guys no that's not the reason in fact if you see how the questions are phrased that gives us an important insight into the difference if you notice Zechariah he says how shall i know this there's a measure of incredulity there's a measure of prove it to me prove it to me and yet Mary is searching for okay i know you can do it how house. So, so you see the difference. Mary couldn't understand how this could be. Zachariah demanded further evidence and didn't believe God's word. Here's what Tim Keller highlights as in, in the main difference between Zachariah and Marie, uh, Mary's response. He says, what we see in the Bible's view of doubt is wonderfully nuanced. In many circles, skepticism and doubt are considered an absolute unmitigated good. On the other hand, in a lot of conservative and traditional religious circles, any and all questioning or doubting is thought to be bad. But what you have in the Bible is neither view. There is a kind of doubt that is the sign of a closed mind, and there's a kind of doubt that's the sign of an open mind. Some doubt seeks answers, and some doubt is defensive about the possibility of answers. There are people like Mary who relinquish sovereignty over their lives if they can be shown that the truth is other than what they thought. And there are those like Zechariah who use doubts as a way of staying in control of their lives and keeping their mind closed. So you see the difference there. You see an openness and a, and, a, and a resistance. And it was the resistance in Zechariah that, that, that brought about the, the kind and merciful discipline of God, which eventually resulted in his renewal and change. God wasn't punishing him as though, but he was purifying him and disciplining him and chastening him so that he might be brought to greater worship and knowledge of God. And Mary has that on the front end by grace and so she comes with an open-handed doubting. She's she's not saying like Zechariah, prove it to me. But she is saying how will this be proven? How will this happen? So I want you to appreciate that Mary responds intelligently. She's not gullible. Even though she's a teenager, she's not gullible. She's very intelligent in the way she responds. And faith is very consistent with intelligence because we believe in a revealed faith. It's not something that we imagine, it's something God has spoken. And we weigh it, we weigh it and consider it in light of the evidence. And that's the way Mary does. Number two. Mary responds incrementally, incrementally. That is step by step, step by step. When the angel comes to her, she responds with a question. She wanted to know more, and the angel gives her more information. Look at verse 35. The angel answered her. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called the Holy Son of God. Gives her more information about how this is going to take place. And he first leads her to think about the suitability of Jesus to be the Savior. Think about this. The angel comes to her and describes as much what's going to happen to her as what's going to happen from her. In other words, not just what's going to happen to her, the Holy Spirit's going to overshadow her, but this Savior is going to be eminently suitable for mankind. He says, think about this. He's going to come from a virgin. There will be none more human than Jesus. He's going he's, he's to be named Jesus because there's no one we need more than a Savior who will deliver us from our sins. He's going to be great, so there's going to be none more worthy of admiration than him. He's going to be called the Son of God, so there's going to be none more divine than him. He's going to be a king, so there's going to be none stronger. And he's going to reign forever, so there's going to be no one who will outlast him in his reign. And he's going to be holy so there'll be none pure. Brothers and sisters, that's all we need. We have a Savior who is is the most human, the most necessary, the most worthy of admiration, the most divine, the strongest, the longest, and the most pure being in the entire universe. There is no one more suited to be our Savior, and the angel Gabriel explains that to Mary. Have you received him this morning? Have you taken him to be your suitable Savior? If not, continue to listen and consider Mary's and the way she responds. But not only does the angel give her more information, leading her to embrace this uh, a little at a time, but then she, the angel tells her about what's going on with Elizabeth, a family member, one that she no doubt loved and esteemed. She said, the angel tells her in verse 36, Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age also has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. said, Elizabeth, your cousin is pregnant. And notice how she responds to this. Mary said, behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. We might think, that's it. That's it. That's all that happens. So he he gives her more information about what's going to happen to her and who Jesus is, and then he tells her about Elizabeth. But no, the very next scene, she goes and visits and has it confirmed. So we see in verses 39 through 45 that she has an experience with Elizabeth that confirms what the angel told her, right? Mary goes to her house. John leaps in Elizabeth's womb. And and then Elizabeth tells her, you, you are blessed. You have no idea what is going to happen to you. And then verse 43, why is this granted to me? Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And Mary hears that. The mother of the Lord? The Lord? The Messiah? Jesus? Tim Keller again says, Mary does not appear to understand what is going on until she goes to see another believing sister and they talk together and they worship together. Yes, like Mary... You need to think intensely and doubt openly and eventually surrender completely, but it won't be enough to simply do that as a solitary individual without trusted friends around you. You need community. See, what confirms the, Christ- the, the claims is not just the angelic visit, although that would, would be enough, but it's the experience of that in community. And oftentimes people come to faith in the context of, of a believing community, the church. So Elizabeth and Mary's interaction here reveals to us the importance of having other believers around us that we can verify testimony. Tell me about what the Lord did for you. Tell me about what the Lord did for you. Tell me about what the Lord did for you. And as we hear those overwhelming waves of repeated testimony, it's one of the blessings of getting to witness baptism. We hear another story of how God saved our sister Kathy. And then we compare that with our stories and we say, look, the Lord is, yes, using all kinds of different ways to get people's attention, but he's bringing us all to the same Savior and he's using a lot of the same means. And then as a result of that, Mary erupts in worship in verses 46 through 56. So I want you to see and appreciate the gradual, incremental process in Mary's heart. Coming to faith looks different for different people. For Mary, it was very incremental. She wasn't suspicious in a, in a sinful way. She wasn't doubting in the way of a closed mind. But she was needing, needing more. And the Lord tarried with her and was patient with her and led her slowly through an angelic testimony, through telling her what happened to Elizabeth, and then getting to experience that for herself. We see a similar story in Acts 17 verses 32 to 34. at At the conclusion context, in Acts 17 Paul is preaching on Mars Hill which is in the heart of Athens and he's preaching to a bunch of Greek people and most of them being far from this kind of response. And he preaches the gospel to them and tells them about Christ and then in that there's three different responses that Luke writes about at the end of Acts 17 telling us how people responded here's what they here's what luke writes now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead some mocked but others said we will hear you again about this so paul went out from their midst but some men joined him and believed among whom also were dionysius the areopagite and a woman named damaris and others with them so you got three responses you got mocking eh crazy talk you've got ah uh, i'm interested i could hear more And you've got some believing. But notice, there's three different responses to Paul preaching the resurrection of the dead. Some mock, and that's what people will do. The gospel is the stench of death to those who are perishing, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. But some are interested and need more time. And this is Mary. She's interested. She wants to believe, but it's incremental. John Bunyan was similar. John Bunyan, the author of the great book, Pilgrim's Progress, I believe still the second most read English book in the world after the Bible, which I know wasn't written originally in English. But John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress was, and he spent nearly a year and a half in a state of great agony and depression before breaking through and receiving God's grace. On the other hand, you've got the story of the Philippian jailer in Acts who believed the gospel the first time he heard it much like we see here with Dionysius and Damaris in Acts 17. And some of us in this congregation have that testimony. You believe the gospel the very first time you heard it. I'm among those. But that's not, that's not everybody's story. Some of you, it took 1,500 times hearing the gospel. That'd be interesting. If you, if you actually knew, wouldn't that be cool? Like, you actually know, how many times did I hear the gospel before I believe? The Lord knows. We don't know, but the Lord knows. And yet, our stories are different. Different people take different time. It is wrong to point to Bunyan and insist that the only way we come to Christ is if you have a long season of struggle. Oh, you really got to struggle in your soul for two to three years before you come to Christ, so we make sure it's real. But neither, it's just as wrong to say that unless you have a sudden, dramatic, know-the-time-and-date-and-moment conversion that you aren't truly converted. Mary shows us that acceptance and faith come at different speeds for different people. And we need to be good with that. Mary responds incrementally. Number three, Mary responds intensely. Intensely. She's now been convinced. All right? She's heard the angelic announcement, heard what happened to Elizabeth, went and had it confirmed. No doubt saw Elizabeth's belly going crazy. Like, whoa. Sister, what did you have? for lunch are you cooking burritos again no she didn't did she but but no i mean that had to be crazy and then she sees her and elizabeth explains to her as she's filled with the holy spirit saying blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your room, womb and then she responds after all of this in verse 46 mary said my soul magnifies the lord and my spirit rejoices in god and this is an intense song of worship from the heart of mary her thinking has been convinced, her feelings have been captivated, and she has gladly surrendered. Now, how did the penny ultimately drop for her? She's The answer is that she's truly amazed at the grace she's received. Did you see what the testimony that eventually made her worship was? Look at verse 42 again. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a remnant of what was spoken to her from the Lord. She says, you have no idea how privileged you are. And it's that that causes her to erupt in worship. See, brothers and sisters, it comes down. No argument is going to do it. No angelic visitation is going to do it. What's going to do it is when you realize I am undeserving of God's great kindness to me and he has loved me before the foundation of the world. That's what happens. When you realize you're favored, that is graced. Not, Not favored because you're favorable. That's not me, that's not you. But you're favored because God is gracious. And God has treated you with kindness. Mary wasn't favored because she was somebody important. There was, n- there was nothing utterly unique about this young teenage virgin. Kent Hughes describes what Mary's likely future would have been if the angel Gabriel didn't come to her. Think about this with me. Kent says, quote, From all indicators, her life would not be extraordinary. She would marry humbly give birth to numerous poor children, never travel farther than a few miles from home, and one day die like thousands of others before her, a nobody in a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. We often think God works through extreme giftedness or among those who are wealthy and well-connected, but the Christmas story reminds us that God works among those whom society most often leaves behind. That's us, brothers and sisters. That's us. We're nobodies. And yet, we're ill-deserving nobodies who have been treated with great kindness and grace from God. We heard the gospel. God gave us faith to believe it. God granted us repentance to turn from our sins. God adopted us into His family. God sealed us with His Holy Spirit. God forgave us of our sins. God imputed the righteousness of Christ to us, all apart from anything we ever did. And we sit here this morning as the children of God, loved, redeemed, accepted, destined for heaven, destined for glory, destined for an eternal life and a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. All because of grace. All because of grace. That's why we gather. That's why we sing. We don't come here to sing because we're great. We come here to sing because God's great and has treated us with kindness. Dan Darling says, The thread of redemption woven in Scripture winds its way through a lot of small towns and seemingly little lives. Praise God that his thread of redemption rounded your corner. Wherever you were, wherever you were, it's even thread through little Owensboro, Kentucky this morning. So we should be as shocked as Mary that God would give us such a gift. Mary's story is quite different from ours and yet we can join her song Indeed, we're compelled to sing her song because God's been mindful of our humble, broken, sinful state too. We have nothing to boast in but Jesus. He came to us when we weren't seeking Him. And brothers and sisters, here's the good news. Just as in a unique way, in Mary's virgin womb, the Holy Spirit was forming the the human nature of Jesus Christ. So we are... Well, we're not giving birth to any virgin babies, anything like that. Nevertheless, Paul says in Galatians 4.19 that Christ is being formed in us. Christ is being formed in us. Not in the same way he's being formed in Mary, but that is the, the likeness to Jesus. Sanctification, holiness is being formed in us. Colossians 1.27 says that Christ is in us, the hope of glory. So we are literally, brothers and sisters, pregnant with glory. Because if we have the Holy Spirit residing in our lives, we our future is as secure as Jesus. We are headed to be with him and inherit everything that he inherits. Romans 8, 18-27 remind us that this creation is groaning and we along with it until we embrace our full inheritance as the adopted children of God. We are destined to become like our older brother Jesus. One day we will love perfectly with the kindness and compassion of Jesus. We will only think and see with the wisdom and eyes of heaven. We will fully embrace his will as our favorite bread and our purest delight. And one one day we'll never be selfish, petty, or defensive again. We'll never get our feelings hurt, insist on being right, or demand more. We will be free, whole, and joyful. And to all these promises we respond, how will this be since we're still so very much not like Jesus? We respond like Mary. And God answers graciously back, what is impossible with men is possible with God. That's where our hope rests, not in ourselves, but in the possibility of God, to which we say, may it be as you've promised us in the gospel, Father. May it be we are your beloved children. We're blessed because he's done great things for us and he continues to do great things for us. We are his, we are forgiven, we're declared righteous, we're desired, we're enjoyed and we're loved, as much loved now as you will be when you're glorified. God doesn't love you any less now than when you're perfected. He, he sees you as glorified in Christ already. And when what we will be will one day be realized. His mercy has been extended to our generation and to us personally. Therefore, we glorify Jesus, rejoice in him, and rest in his grace, our great God and Savior. And as the gospel goes deeper into our hearts, may it free us from every fear but the fear of our Lord. So, by the power of the Holy Spirit, may we increasingly be overwhelmed with a greater experience of every good thing we have in Christ. That's one thing that Christmas is meant to give to us. Joy to the world indeed. Christ has come, and he's coming again. Fourthly and finally, we've looked at Mary's response as being intelligent, incremental, and intense. And now we come to the fourth and final point. Mary responds irrevocably. She's not going back. She's all in. Now it's that's amazing considering what happens on the front end of the passage. She's greatly troubled. And yet at the end, the Lord has done great things for me. How'd that happen? I'm greatly troubled. This is horrific. This is terrifying. May it be done to me according to your word. How did she get there? Well, she got there through understanding, as we just said, that she's been divinely favored. But being divinely favored, brothers and sisters, does not mean you'll be exempt from hardship and heartache. Mary had to walk right into it. Joseph had to walk right into it. Zachariah and Elizabeth had to walk into it. They both lost their boys before they at least... You know, we assume. I don't know if Zachary and Elizabeth had already passed on by that point, by by the time John had been beheaded. But nevertheless, they both lost their boys. At relatively young ages. But the favor Mary received was amazing, but it was also incredibly difficult. And yet she said yes. And think about this: by saying yes, by saying "Let it be done to me according to your word," what was Mary signing up for? Well, let let me move through these very quickly. She was signing up for a tainted reputation. We've already talked about that with Joseph. But I want to bring out one other point that I didn't with Joseph. Remember three decades later, in John chapter 8, verse 41, Jesus gets this from one of the leaders. We were not born of sexual immorality. That's three decades later, and they still think that he was born because of Mary's unfaithfulness. If Jesus couldn't leave such rumors behind, Mary never did. She never did. Mary endured a complicated childbirth, fleeing on the run as a refugee. Mary faced a threat on her newborn son's life from King Herod. Mary took part in a very bittersweet baby dedication ceremony took him to simeon to get him blessed and he says guess what it's going to divide the whole nation no mother no mother's heart wants her son to be hated and yet simeon saying half the people are going to hate this guy that would have been a knife in mary's heart told that her precious baby boy is going to divide the heart of the nation and then she had to deal with a missing preteen in luke chapter two right and then when they find him which would have stressed her out to no 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 end having been gone 3 days and then she finds him and then he said I was just hanging out with my father like I'm not central to you anymore and and Mary had to oh he's he loves God he's called by God to do things and even at 12 years old I'm not the center of his world God is and then she has to release her son to a very awkward career path she has to leave the family business he leaves the family business of being a carpenter to become a traveling preacher abroad which is uh, quitting a steady job to freelance and no mother's security glands will fail to sweat over that prospect and especially when he says I'm not going to son where are you going to live I have no idea okay and then she goes to witness his first miracle because you know she's behind her boy. She wants to show up at the Christmas program, you know. So she's going to be there at the wedding at Cana in Galilee, and he's going to do something. And then, and then he he and then she's giving him advice: do this, do this, do this. Just like any mom, there are always suggestions to what their children should do. And Mary watches her son divide the family in town, divide the family. This is seen repeatedly: Matthew twelve, Matthew thirteen, Mark three, Luke four. And then the the heartbreak of heartbreaks is she has to witness her son be tortured, killed, and crucified. In John 19, verses 25 through 27, she's there, and Jesus gives John to be her caretaker after he's gone. And yet, in light of all of that, not knowing most of that, but knowing some of it, she responded with surrender. Brothers and sisters, surrender means that we're willing to obey anything the Bible clearly says to do, whether we like it or not, And we are willing to trust God in anything he sends into our lives, whether we understand it or not. That is faith. That's what faith demands of us. Will you say yes to God? Will you, like Mary, turn your back on your dreams and say yes to the one who died for you? In some fashion, you have to say what Mary said when you give your life to Christ your heart must say something like this, I do not know all that you're going to ask of me, Lord Jesus, but I'll do whatever you say in your word, whether I like it or not, and I'll accept patiently whatever you send into my life, whether I understand it or not. That, friends, is what it means to become a Christian. And if any of those parts are left off, if we say, yeah, I'll follow you, but, he's not your Lord yet, you still are. But if you say, Let it be done to me according to your word, even if I don't understand it. Let it be done to me according to your word, even if it's painful. Let it be done to me according to your word, even if I would never choose it myself, though he slay me, Job said, I'll hope in him. That's what we gotta do. And God will give us grace to do that. We have to pray, though. And John Wesley's covenant prayer expresses this well. John Wesley prayed this frequently, and I've uh, updated the English a little bit. John Wesley's covenant prayer was this I am no longer my own but yours. Put me to what you will, place me with whom you will. Put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me but put, be put to work for you or set aside for you, praised for you or criticized for you. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and fully surrender all things to your glory and service. And now, O wonderful and holy God, creator, redeemer, and sustainer, you are mine and I am yours, so be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it also be made in heaven. Amen. That's what we're doing, friends, when we get baptized. We're saying, I'm yours, and you're mine. And God will give us grace to do that. But we have to cry out to him. How do you get there, though? And I'm going to conclude with this. How do you get there? How do you get there with a, I'll give everything I have to you. It's when you realize Jesus gave everything he had for you. That's the only thing that melts us. The only way we can respond the way Mary responds is because Jesus took Mary's words upon his own lips in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, let it be done to me according to your word. There's no other way this cup can pass from me. Let it be done to me according to your word. And it's that love that causes us to love him. For every sacrifice that Mary made... And that we make, Jesus made an infinitely greater sacrifice for you. You will never outgive Jesus. You will never outsurrender Jesus. Jesus surrendered more for you than you'll ever give for him. We give a thimble full of surrender, he gives us an ocean of surrender. Don't ever think you're paying too high a price. We, we never pay too high a price even if we're martyred at the end of a gun that is no small price to pay for the one who endured the wrath of God for your sins so Jesus surrendered his all for us and that enables us to say I surrender all to you because you're my loving Lord and if you went there first and you went there deeper for me than I'll, I'll ever go for you I trust you Because you're not just calling me to do something you didn't do. You stepped right in and did far more for me than I'll ever do for you. I trust you. I love you. I will follow you. Let it be done to me according to your word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Christmas, for the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. Thank you for Mary. Thank you for our sister who teaches us how to respond to you. Imperfect, yes. But so real. Help us to see what the nature of true faith is that it's an intelligent response, it's an incremental response, it's an intense response, and it's an irrevocable response. We pray that you would lead all of us to deeper, deeper trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. For those of us here this morning who have yet to place our trust in Him, that even in this moment, together as we sang that we would transfer our trust away from ourselves and exclusively to the one who died for us and that we would be realized that we are graced with great favor to even hear this message this morning the fact that we have been exposed to such kindness thank you thank you for your word thank you for the way it speaks to us in the midst of our own messes and calls us out to greater faith and trust in you help us to do that this very week as we contemplate the surrendering of our lord jesus for us that we might surrender all to Him. We pray this in His name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.